one of the things we never realized is the very strong link between obesity and type 2 diabetes and cancer. Like obesity and cancer? It's a huge risk factor. So that's how I got very interested in the question of how do you get somebody to lose weight? If you're fasting, you're basically feeding yourself through your own body fat, which is literally the reason we have body fat. It's not there for looks. It's there for you to use if you have nothing else. So as a diet, it really is the ultimate in weight loss. That creates a lot of questions for me though. Give the drug, give the drug, give the drug. Like who's talking about the diets? Who's talking about how to lose weight? Because it's not the doctors, because there's no money behind that. Winds up being Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig. So who do we believe? What can we do as the consumer to make sure we're being fed the right advice? It's only been done since the beginning of time. And Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, everybody has fasting. Big Pharma behind closed doors doesn't want these treatments to stop because it's pretty profitable. You had the same paradigm of here, let me give you this drug to lose weight. and. It doesn't work because you have to actually change the diet. You actually have to change your lifestyle. State-of-the-art drug today, most of the price tags are $100,000, $200,000. It's insane. The whole thing is so corrupt. My guest today has written many books, but one of the books he wrote titled The Obesity Code got 10,237 reviews on Amazon. The second book he wrote, The Diabetes Code, has nearly 4,000 reviews, and his newest book coming out on November 10, titled The Cancer Code. He is a doctor, Dr. Jason Funk, got his undergrad from University of Toronto and his specialty at UCLA. With that being said, Dr. Jason Funk, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Oh, thanks for having me. Great, yeah, great to be here. So, so I got to tell you, whether a person's an athlete, a politician, a business person, married, single, divorced, rich, poor, middle-class, everybody wants to figure out a way to be healthy and live longer. So I think we have the right guests to kind of help us live a few years longer. We're grateful for it. But uh, I, I got a few things here I want to go with you. I want to I talk to you about cancer. I, I pulled up a bunch of stats. I got some questions for you about cancer, specifically since that's the book that uh, we'll be spending a lot of time talking about. We'll spend some time talking about intermittent fasting because you have done talks on that. A couple of your talks have gotten a few million views. I think one of them has got five or six million views. And then obviously diabetes kind of goes with uh, um, all of these, kind of somewhat with obesity. But let's start off with uh, the first one, which is your background on how you all of a sudden decided to want to research these types of material. What, what inspired you want to write and research obesity code or diabetes code or now cancer code? Yeah, that's an interesting thing because as a kidney specialist, what happened was I went to medical school in the late uh, mid to late 1990s. And at the time, of course, I wasn't really interested in nutrition. That's not something doctors really were taught. You get really no training in medical school and not much in specialty training either. We got a lot of training in drugs and how to do dialysis, for example but not, not much on weight loss. But what happened, of course, is that over that period of time, obesity just became a bigger and bigger and bigger problem in the United States. So we, you've probably seen all the stats in terms of obesity. It's just basically going straight up since like the, the, the mid-1970s. And along with that came type 2 diabetes. So people who are overweight are at much higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes and probably the number one cause um, of kidney disease by far, actually, is type 2 diabetes. 
So that's really where I started to see a lot more problems with um, you know, the field that I was in. So it was interesting. So I just treated people the normal way. And, but the thing is that it, it was not very satisfying. That is, people would get their kidney disease. I treat them with drugs. I treat them with uh, dialysis and so on. And then they'd still get sick. And eventually it struck me as very strange the way that we treat uh, type 2 diabetes and kidney disease because if the, if the kidney disease is caused by the type 2 diabetes, then the key is really to get rid of the type 2 diabetes. And the thing that was strange is that if you went to sort of any standard uh, talk from a medical school or university, they talk about how type 2 diabetes was this chronic and progressive disease. At the same time, everybody knew it wasn't true. Everybody, I mean, not just doctors, but everybody knew it was just a, basically a lie. Because if you're able to lose weight, then your diabetes almost always got better and sometimes completely disappeared. So that wasn't random, everybody knew it. And the problem was then not how to treat people with drugs. The real, the real solution is how to get them to lose weight so that they don't get diabetes, so they don't get kidney disease. But it wasn't just kidney disease, of course. Type 2 diabetes causes heart attacks, causes cancer, causes amputations. Like it's the number one cause of blindness. It's the number one cause of amputations. You get these diabetic foot infections that people need amputated. There's all kinds of the number one cause of nerve damage. So it, it just caused all kinds of problems. Those are the problems that I was seeing in my patients and I didn't want to treat them. I wanted them to be better. But the only way to do that was to get them to reverse their type two diabetes, which is possible because we know that. And then therefore they must lose weight. So that's how I got very interested in the question of how do you get somebody to lose weight? And that's when I started to look back at the medical literature, because my advantage is that I could go back, I could look through all the literature. And of course, the standard advice for weight loss was, and every doctor, every dietitian would get this advice. They tell people, okay, well, just eat 500 calories less per day, and you're going to lose about a pound of fat per week. Okay, so this is the standard advice that we gave for the last sort of 35 years. And it didn't work for anybody. Okay. And that just wasn't my, it just wasn't my opinion, right? People were gaining weight. People were getting this advice. They're trying to do it. And then they were not succeeding. So the point is that if you actually look at um, big databases of how well this advice worked, how, how often people went from sort of being obese to non-obese, the success rate of this sort of treatment was about 0.5%. In other words, about a 99.5% failure rate of this advice to just cut a few calories, low, eat a low fat diet, cut calories, 99.5% chance of failure. Like what sort of idiot would give that advice wow. that almost never works? Yeah. And the problem of course, was that it wasn't just medical. Every lay person, everybody in the country had practically done one mm. of these diets mm -hmm. and it almost always failed. So then that's why I started looking back at it and saying, well, what's going on here? Like, this is the stuff that I was taught, I was brought up on, and it wasn't true. And it wasn't true for me either, because I've done these diets and it didn't work and it didn't work for anybody. So that's what the obesity code was. Really going back and looking at this calories in, calories out story that we had been fed and trying to look at it from a very scientific standpoint. And of course, the whole thing is just garbage. 
because the whole premise of this sort of a calories is a calories idea is that, you know, if you eat 100 calories of cookies and 100 calories of, say, an egg, well, they're going to be equally fattening, okay? But that's garbage. It doesn't, it's not even true in any sense because the problem is when you take that food, like you take a cookie and put it in your mouth and you take that egg and you put it in your mouth, the minute you put it in, the hormonal response of our body, our body responds to that food completely differently if it's cookies, like carbohydrates, or egg, which is fat and protein. Mm -hmm. Completely different response from a hormonal standpoint. Therefore, the instructions that we are giving to our body from those foods is completely different. So for example, you eat a cookie, the hormone insulin spikes way up. Okay, And what insulin does is it tells our body to please store body fat. Store those calories as body fat. That's its job. That's insulin's job is to tell our body to do that. So when you eat the cookie, insulin spikes up, all of that 100 calories goes straight into our fat uh, deposits that's being stored. You eat that egg, of course, insulin does not spike up nearly as high, and therefore our body can use that energy. They'll use it for different things. They'll use it to build muscle. They'll use it to you know, burn off because it's not about the number of calories your body, when the calories goes in, can either store it or it can burn it. But which one it does depends on the instructions that we give our body, which are different according to the different foods. So, you know, when people say a calorie is a calorie, it's like, of course, a calorie is a calorie. But I never asked you that question. I never said, is a calorie a calorie? Mm -hmm, it's like mm -hmm. saying a dog is a dog. It's like, so what? That's a nonsensical statement. The question I really want to know is, are all calories equally fattening? And that is not true. So the point is that if you eat a calorie of um, cookies or if you eat broccoli, they're not equally fattening, mm -hmm. right? And your grandmother could have told you that because if you eat cookies, she'll say, oh, you're going to get fat. If you eat broccoli, nobody ever gets fat eating broccoli. So that's just common sense, right? It's just common sense. And it doesn't dispel the myth of a calorie is a calorie because the point is that if, you, if your body has those calories, so say you eat a cookie, say you take 100, cookie, uh, 100 uh, calories of cookie or you drink a big gulp or something, like some sugary soda, right? So you take 100 calories of uh, a big gulp. Well, the effect on our body is different. One, it's gonna spike insulin, it's gonna go into our fat stores, it's gonna store that energy but it's not gonna make you full, right? So if you eat an egg or a little piece of meat, it will make you full. So therefore the effect on the number of calories coming in is totally different. The effect on our bodies, whether we store it or not is completely different. And therefore what we have to focus on is not the number of calories because we know that's a strategy that has failed, like not just once, but it's failed over and over and over and over again, right? What we have to do is concentrate on a strategy that is going to tell our body to use up some of this, those, those calories that we've stored, which is just body fat, right? And there's a number of ways that you can do that. You can change either, you know, really only one of two things. You either change the types of food that you eat, basically the question of what to eat, or you change how often you eat, which is a question of when you eat, right? And that's where intermittent fasting comes up. 
Because if you simply reduce the number of times you eat in a day, well, that's going to change everything because by not eating, you're going to let your insulin levels drop. As your insulin levels drop, your body's actually going to pull those calories out of storage and use them because that's what the body does. This is a, a very interesting what you're saying. I got a bunch of notes and I got like five questions already for you and I'll, I'll go through one of them. And that doesn't include the other four pages of notes that I have, but let's get right into it. So uh, uh, first things first is, you know, you, you explain a lot of things right now and it prompted three things for me. Number one, I, I am not in the world that you're in. I'm not a doctor. Most people are not. And, and to me, the world of looking at doctors is all of them sound convincing. Okay. They all sound convincing. And as kids, we've been raised to respect that one title, DR period, Dr. Jason Fong, and we have to salute the doctor. It's a lot of credibility we give it. Our parents wanted us to be doctors growing up. You're Asian, I'm Middle Eastern. If you become a doctor, you're a god in the family, right? When you become a doctor, that's how we were raised. Now, you know, would you say that to, to the consumer who's consuming this content, is there an element of your world as doctors that there are different religions? Because if we put five doctors there, they all have fancy degrees. They all could believe in five different things and they're all convincing. So who do we believe? One minute, do we go this route of a diet? One minute, do we go that route of a diet? One minute, do we go, how, what can we do as the consumer to make sure we're being fed the right advice? I think the best thing to do is use a bit of common sense and you have to think, and you have to look through the test of time. So if something has withstood the test of time, then you know it's fairly decent advice, okay? So you look back at the 70s, and I always choose the 70s because this is a time where there's not a lot of wide, it's not, there's not widespread hunger in the United States. It's, you know, it's fairly advanced. I mean, but there's at the same time that there's relative availability of food, there's no obesity. And the question is why? Like, what did they do differently then compared to what we're doing now. And of course, the big, big change came in 1977, which was the change to eat a very low fat diet, right? So in 1977, the dietary guidelines for Americans came out and all of a sudden, all of us were told that we should eat less fat, which was the equivalent of telling people to eat more refined carbohydrates. So if you look back at the first uh, food pyramid, at the bottom of the pyramid, there's bread and there's rice and there's potatoes, you know, and it's like eat seven or eight servings a day sort of thing, right? Seven to 11, I think, servings a day. And it's like, well, who thinks eating seven slices of white bread a day is slimming? Like it's not, it's not very slimming because now we look back and say, okay, well, you know, eating a bunch of French fries and potato chips and, you know, bread is not very good. And you can say, well, those are all refined foods as well, but that's what was on the pictures, right? Was the, was the white bread and so on. So you have to say, okay, well, that was one of the big changes that happened. So if we simply go back to a more traditional way of eating, are we going to be able to sort of regain this sort of effortless uh, maintenance of our weight? And you'd have to say, well, that's probably true. So this sort of whole low fat thing that came out of the 1970s was the big change. Prior to that, of course, people ate fat, they ate cheese, they eat eggs and all this sort of stuff. Um, and it's interesting because, again, if you look at the big uh, scientific data of the time, um, in the 70s, people ate three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
And by the 2004, when you look at the big surveys, most Americans were eating closer to six times a day. So breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. So again, big changes in both what we ate and when we ate. Now they were related in some sense, that is people who are eating a lot of refined carbohydrates, you know, you eat, uh, you know, if you ate steak and eggs in the morning, you're pretty full until lunchtime. If you ate two slices of white bread and jam, you're sort of ravenous by 1030 and looking for a low fat muffin. So people started eating much more frequently. So the thing is that what I'm talking about mostly is going to back to sort of a 1970s style diet, which of course people had been eating all the way prior to that, which is not a low fat diet, which is basically eating natural foods, eating the fat, like, you know, this whole thing about eating low fat, cutting out the butter and cutting out the cream and stuff that didn't exist before 19, the 1970s because people didn't care about that stuff so much. Um, and the, you know, eating fewer times in a day, cutting out the snacks. And then again, if you wanted to lose weight, then you try to change either what you ate or when you ate, including the whole idea of fasting, which became a really dirty word sometime, I think in the 1990s and, uh, is because everybody started eating six, seven times a day. And then you started to hear the advice from dietitians. Oh, you should eat six small meals a day. It's like, Okay, prior to 1970s, nobody ate six meals a day. No, at no time in history did anybody eat six times a day, right? You think somebody in, you know, the 1500s, you know, some monk who's busy all, busy all day praying and working the fields is going to have a snack and, you know, bring out his granola bar. He didn't do that, right? That wasn't something that we did. So if we start introducing these sort of newfangled diets, like the low fat diet, like eating six times a day, well, those haven't withstood the test of time, as opposed to eating three meals a day, natural foods. And if you want to sort of push it, well, you can skip a meal. Because remember, in the 1970s, if you were a naughty boy, you got sent to your bed without dinner. You basically fasted for 20 hours from noon until the next day yeah. and nobody died. Nobody had any problem, <laughs> right? It was fine. Yes, you're a little hungry and hopefully you'd learned your lesson, but that was it. That was it. So if you wanted to lose weight, you could simply change mm. one of these levers and say, you know what? I can fast because if I don't eat, what's going to happen? Well, my body is going to be forced to use the calories that have been stored, which is body fat. That's perfect. So then you say, okay, well, fasting, that's interesting. Is it a newfangled idea? No, <laughs> it's only been done since the beginning of time. I mean, you look at the Bible, you look at the, you know, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, you know. There's no question, yeah. Everybody has fasting, right? The Greek Orthodox Church, Mormonism, everybody fasts. So it's not something that people can't do. It's been proven over and over and over that they can do it. And what's interesting is that up to that point, it's considered up to the 80s and 90s, it's considered a very healthy practice. Even when there's no obesity, people are like, yeah, it's a great thing. You cleanse out your body, you feel great, right? It's not super fun, but it's, it's there for you, right? In Ramadan, you have a month of fasting. So, and then after the 1990s, it just falls off like, Everybody thinks it's like the worst thing you can possibly do to your body, even if you're 400 pounds. I'm like, 
what do you think body fat is there for? It's there for you to use as a source of energy if you have nothing to eat. So if you're fasting, you're basically feeding yourself through your own body fat, which is literally the reason we have body fat. It's not there for looks. It's there for you to use if you have nothing else. So we're just using it for what it's supposed to be used for. And we're giving our bodies the time it needs. And that's what I started working on probably five or six years ago. And people, boy, they thought I was crazy. But the, the, the results we saw were just incredible. Like people coming off their medications or losing weight, their diabetes was reversing. Even early stages of kidney disease were reversing. It was, it was just insane. We actually wrote up a, a paper um, and we, we profiled these three people who had about 25 years of type two diabetes and like within a month and a half, we practically had them off. We had them off all their insulin and had all three of them off all their medications. And they actually became non-diabetic by the definition of their blood work. And, you know, years later, they're still non-diabetic. So 25 years of type two diabetes, like reversed like that in a month, right? Crazy, just crazy stuff. That, that, that creates a lot of questions for me though, when you're saying that, because I'm, I'm, I'm with you, I'm on your side to see what's going on over here, but there's, but let me play the devil's advocate here just to kind of see where you go with this. So on one end, when you look at diabetes, the global prevalence of diabetes amongst adults, 18 years or over, uh, has increased in 1980 from 4.7% to now eight and a half, nine percent So it's doubled. You're in that world. I'm giving you stats that you know about. The number of people with diabetes from 2000, from 1980 to today, 1980, we had 108 million people with diabetes. Today, it's 430 million people. So that thing is nearly 4X, but the population in 1980 was only at 4.34 billion. Today, it's at 7.7. That's not even doubled, but diabetes has gone 4X, right? So we're looking at some of this data. But then at the same time, on the opposite side, which is kind of weird, is in 1970, average life expectancy was 67 years old. And then today, the average life expectancy is 79 years old. So if we were eating three times a day in 70 and we're living 67 years old and we're eating six times a day and we're living 79 years old, how does that, how do you take that? Because some people may come back and say, well, doc, I'm with you, but man, we're living longer. Shouldn't that be a better sign that we're making progress? What would you say to that? Yeah, we are actually making progress, but it, in, in different diseases. So if you look at what killed Americans, it was much different. That is a lot of infections. So you look at the antibiotics, for example, antibiotics were only developed. That, I mean, that was one of the major, major changes of, of uh, post, you know, the post-war era, right? So they're developed just before 19, uh, the World War II. And then of course the use really boomed during World War II and then it sort of took off. So the, the stuff that was killing Americans was a lot of infections. So remember there's tons of um, measles and mumps and polio, you know, the iron lung, and you had pneumonia was killing people. Um, you know, if you're talking worldwide, diarrhea with bad water and stuff was killing, I mean, it still kills a lot of people, but it was killing a lot of people back then. So you had all these infectious diseases. So that was really the diseases of the 20th century. So if you look at the, you know, from 1900 to 2000, uh, for most of the first sort of two thirds of that, 
a lot of infectious diseases. So therefore, the you know, if you if you got a bad infection in 1970, you had mm -hmm. like sort of three antibiotics. <laughs> and if they didn't work, you were sort of out of luck. Makes sense. So a lot of people die. Um, you look at heart disease also. So again, if you look back at the 70s, the standard treatment for heart disease, if you had a heart attack, for example, was strict bed rest, which was actually just killing people, right? You, you, they, they'd literally lay you in bed for two weeks while you, you know, basically got worse. Now, of course, we don't do that. I mean, you had a heart attack, they want to walk around and make sure you exercise and all this sort of stuff. Smoking was bad, right? A lot of people smoked, they got all this disease. So there's a, it's a different type of disease. But as those started getting better, so of course, as those started getting better, the life expectancy went up because, um, because you're, you're, you're a better able to treat all those diseases. But then other diseases started to increase in prevalence. So, you know, somebody who, for example, died of pneumonia may never have gotten, lived long enough to get type 2 diabetes. So now you're starting to get these other diseases that are cropping up, which are more associated with aging. So things like uh, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, now really start coming to the forefront. So if you look at overall mortality, overall survival, yes, we're making progress. We definitely are on a global scale. But if you just look at the sort of diseases that are important now, obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, of course, we made a lot of progress stents and, you know, heart transplants. And there's a lot of progress in medicine. It's just that where the big change was, was that in those diseases of the 20th century, the paradigm of treatment was completely different. That is, if you got sick, you went to the doctor, you had an infection, he says, here, take these antibiotics, go get better. Or you get an appendix, here, I'll do surgery, you go get better. Now, you take that paradigm of, here, let me give you a pill, or here, let me do some surgery on you. And now you apply it to a chronic disease like type 2 diabetes. And it doesn't work at all for obesity. It doesn't work at all. Because what happens is that there's all these obesity drugs that have failed because you had the same paradigm of here, let me give you this drug to lose weight. And it, it doesn't work because you have to actually change the diet. You actually have to change your lifestyle. That's the only way you're going to get better because these things are not genetic because we know that they've increased like type 2 diabetes, so increase a lot, but the genetics of the human population have not changed in that period of time. So it's a lifestyle disease. Obesity, same thing, right? It, it went way up during the, from the seventies on, it's not, a, there's no genetic change. So it's a, it's a lifestyle disease. Mm -hmm. It's not a drug, uh, you know, a drug deficiency or it's not, it's not something you can just do some surgery on and make better, but you have to change your paradigm and say, in order to get better, we don't need more drugs. We need to get the right information so that we can change our lifestyle we can change our diet. We can incorporate fasting, for example. And now you can make some progress because you're applying the right paradigm, which is this is a chronic lifestyle disease. Therefore, I need a chronic lifestyle treatment, right? So before in the 20th century, it's all, you need this drug. Now it's about, this is a dietary disease. Therefore, you must have a dietary treatment. That is the only thing that is going to make sense. Got it. That makes sense. And, you know, in a way, as somebody who runs business, uh, you, you look at all your processes that you run and the standard oper operation procedure, and you're looking at everything saying, what can we do to make this thing more efficient? How can we make this thing faster? Make, can we get this process done in half the time or even save a minute or two or three minutes? 
this is almost a way of getting people to be living longer. So we gone, we went from 67 to 79 and we may have improved in certain areas, but that doesn't mean we're improving in other areas. So what that makes me question is the following is on one end, as you're going through it and you're talking about it and you said, my way of doing treatment was what I was told to do. And I realized, I don't know if this is the solution on treating things. It's, it sounded like at one phase, you were almost frustrated, which influenced you to want to do a little more research. When I get a friend and I'll say, you know, Pat, I'm going through really challenging times. I'm depressed, all this stuff. I'll say, listen, have you sat down and talked to somebody? No. Go see a therapist or go see a psychiatrist or somebody. Okay, go uh, recommend to somebody. And they go to them and it's as if psychologists nowadays, their number one thing they do is what? Here's Olaf, here's Prozac, here's this, take this, right? Or you tell somebody, I can't sleep at night. I'm having such a hard time sleeping. And they go see a sleep doctor, right? And, you know, say, hey, you need to take Lorizam, you need to take this pill to help you go to sleep at night. It's immediate medication. Question for you becomes the following. Is the way doctors are treating patients in all different worlds, is it, is, it, is, it, is it the way it is today because of lack of advancement? Is it the way it is today because the, the method is kind of like, well, this is how we've always done it. This is how you treat them. Just do this. So they're not willing to change a lot and entertain new ways. Or is a part of it because there is the big sponsors of universities are possibly bigger pharma that there's money in this thing as well to make sure that the pills are being sold because that's a form of money being made. And these things are very profitable. Which one of those things is what makes you think, I mean, this is your world. I'm just curious and, and I'm being skeptical because that's the way I am. Is it lack of advancement? Is it, we just don't want to change. This is how we've been doing it and take our order and give this treatment because this is what works. Or is it big pharma behind closed doors doesn't want these treatments to stop because it's pretty profitable? Unfortunately, I think the answer is the last one. I think it's very profitable. So there's a ton of ways that doctors are influenced to prescribe more medications, even when it's marginally useful. And, the, you know, if, if you ever speak to a doctor, everything is very familiar. So, you know, you see these, they, you have these drug reps, which will come in and they'll take you to dinner, right? Fancy dinner. And they're not supposed to, there's actually guidelines on this but they'll take you to the fanciest place ever, right? And they'll treat you to a nice dinner and whatever. And they, they get this all the time. So that's one way they influence you. They do these talks, for example, and this is all through medical school. And it happens that, you know, I could go to dinner at a fancy restaurant literally five times a week if I wanted to, all for free, like literally like $200, meals. I would, I could do that free. I just sign up. Like wow. they'll do it. No problem. So the, the thing is that they, 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 they influence you in very subtle ways. And of course, for the big pharma, uh, these are not by accident. They know what gives them a return on their investments. And they know because they actually track every single prescription that I write. So I will write a prescription and I'll send it to the pharmacy and they buy information from the pharmacy uh, and, and do, do it for everything. So wow. every single prescription that I write, they know. So when I go to some free drug dinner, I actually don't go to any of these, but I used to like 
15 years ago. So if I went to some free drug dinner where I got some free thing and they were uh, promoting some blood pressure pill, they could see that immediately my prescription rate of that blood pressure pill compared to another one, which was probably cheaper and mm-hmm. equally as effective, yep. went up. And that's, that, that's why they keep doing this and they keep inviting people out. Uh, then the problem is that level of corruption moves all the way up. So then the next thing they do is they, you have, you, you get offered a role as a paid speaker. So what they'll do is they'll give me a opportunity to give a talk for, do- for other doctors and they'll pay me. And again, I don't do this, but I could do this if I wanted to pay me $1,500 for a couple of hours to enjoy a nice dinner and, and just talk to some other, uh, you know, uh, non-specialists about a drug. And it wasn't any random talk. They would give you the slide deck. So they're like, this is what you're going to say. And unfortunately, a lot of people do that. It's easy money. It's a free dinner, like $200 is $1,500. And you get to feel like a big shot because you're talking to other doctors, teaching other doctors. Then you get up to the, uh, the professors and the people in the university. They're not talking a few hundred bucks here and there. They're raking it in from big pharma. So the big pharma companies are sponsoring them. They get these people to do studies where they get millions of dollars. And they get to do these things where they go to like conferences as part of the study. And it'll be like essentially a free trip to like Vienna, okay? With dinner, with your plane, with your hotel and because you're going to give a talk. So now you're not talking about a few thousand dollars. They're getting stuff worth tens of thousands of dollars. They're getting sponsorship for their studies which is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And of course they will advance because the pharma company knows that this doctor is very pliable to all this sort of bribery, which is really what it is. It's basically bribery. So a doctor who advances doesn't advance necessarily because he's very smart, but because he has a lot of people pushing him in the background with this money. Because if you're bringing money to the university, the university loves that, right? They're always cash strapped. So then all the people who are taking the most money from the pharma companies get pushed up to the top. And then you have things like these trials, you know, the, the things that we depend on to make decisions, they're all run by the pharmaceutical companies, right? So it's like if, you know, this, so let's take antidepressants uh, as an example. So you know that antidepressants, you have to produce a study that show that it works in order for the FDA to approve the drug, which is fine. That's the way science is, but a drug company they, they underwrite all the studies. So the thing is that they get to choose which studies they publish and which they don't. So their strategy is to do say 40 studies and 20 of them, they'll just throw in the trash and then they'll publish the other 20. Well, which do you think those 20 are? The 20 that look the best. Yeah, that makes and, sense. And, and, and they've done a, they, they, they've gone through, somebody has gone through and sort of told the whole story of this. And so it's, it's fairly well known. But if it's sort of like if you flip a, a, you know, a coin, heads, tails, heads, tails, and you throw out all the tails, you say, see, I get heads every time. This is a great drug. So if you throw out all the trials that don't work and simply count the ones that do work, well, all of a sudden your drug looks great. And this is the, exactly the story with antidepressants. So the drug looks great. 
And now you can go spend money promoting it to doctors and say, look, look at the evidence. The evidence says that this drug is amazing, right? But then you get out there and says, this drug doesn't barely even work. And that's the big problem. So the, the, the sort of money goes all the way up. I, 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 there's one study uh, and, and the, mag, the, the journal articles that publish these studies, they get a lot of money from pharmaceuticals. Um, if you ever read studies, there's a huge list of conflicts of interest. So for example, in the sugar industry, what they found, for example, is that you know, they took all the studies on sugar and they divided that into you know, the people that got money from the sugar industry. And virtually every study that the people who didn't get any money from the sugar industry found that sugar is not good for you. But there's a huge number of researchers who got money from the sugar industry who are like, yeah, it's, it's sugar is not that bad for you. So, you know, it's, it's so like, it's so corrupt. The whole thing is so corrupt. Like it, you can't even imagine. It's like, I look at it and I think, how can people allow this? Like, how can this be legal? It's, it's insane that this stuff is allowable. But the problem is that when, when you allow this sort of stuff, now you get a biased point of view. Now you get all this information that's being funneled down into the regular doctors on the front lines we're getting this information from the universities, not knowing that the whole system is corrupt sort of top to bottom. And then, you know, doing, because they're generally good people. And most of my, a lot of friends of mine are doctors and they're good people. But if the information they're being fed is that, oh, antidepressants are the greatest, the greatest, the greatest, the greatest. These drugs are the greatest, 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 greatest. Then what are you going to think? Your friends say that, the specialists say that, the university says that. So you say, here's a drug, here's a drug, here's a drug. And it should never have been like that. It's the same for type two diabetes where people just say, give the drug, give the drug, give the drug. It's like, well, what about the diet? Like who's talking about the diets? Who's talking about how to lose weight? Because it's not the doctors. You can bet your life on that because there's no money behind that. It winds up being Weight Watchers and Jenny Craig and all this stuff. And I'm like, come on, where's the doctors? Like, where's our responsibility? Yeah. Because losing weight is such an important part of health. And yet you have no doctors on the front line saying, this is what you need to do. This is what makes sense. Forget the calories, forget this. Yes, you can fast. Of course you can fast. Like who doesn't want you to fast? Well, of course it's the drug, it's the food companies, right? So they're all like, yeah, fasting is terrible. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Never skip a meal. Eat six times a day, have some snacks. If you can't eat, eat drink this meal supplement. It's like, what the hell? If you don't want to that's, eat, that's you're crazy what you're saying. But you, you got to realize, like, I'm, I'm not in your community. And to me, I'm listening to this, you know, and, and, and I'm sitting there asking myself, you're a doctor, you seem reasonable, you seem believable, you could be doing the additional stuff to make that 1500 bucks or $200. Integrity is being compromised. But in your world, I also sense there's an element of if you don't do what you're being asked, then you're seen as a rebel then you're being ousted. Then if you're ousted, you don't get the additional stuff. Then if you don't get the additional stuff, you could have negative reviews written about you. Then if you get the negative reviews, then it could hurt your practice. I mean, it's, it's a very uh, uh, risky type of a business to be in. Per perfect example, like what you just said about intermittent fasting. I'm in an office. Uh, my CFO, he is uh, a believer of intermittent fasting. If you see what he looks like, he looks like he's a Brad Pitt looking guy. Okay. I mean, in his job interview, when he sat in front of me, he says, let me tell you why you should hire me. I said, why? He says, I'm 46 years old. And I ran a mile last week in 546. I said, uh, 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 yeah, I ran a mile last week in 546. I said, no, I'm sorry, 446. 
At 46 years old, he ran a mile in four minutes and 46 seconds. I said, what? He said, I ran a mile last week in four minutes and 46 seconds. You see his body and his wife, you wouldn't believe it. He's a hardcore intermittent fasting guy. So his office is right next to my wife's office. She's the VP of operations. She is now a believer of intermittent fasting. So I have to hear about this 24-7. So on the flip side, if you're saying that some of these guys that are big pharma people don't believe in it, I decide to go and pull up what they have to say about intermittent fasting in a negative way. This is what I pulled up. Tell me what you think about this. So an article I read, I said, it says side effects of intermittent fasting. Number one, sleep disturbance. A study done in the journal Nature and Science of Sleep points to intermittent fasting causing a decrease in REM sleep. So number one is sleep disturbance. Number two, you're feeling hangry, which is hungry and angry. Number three, brain fatigue. Number four, low blood sugar. Diabetics should avoid any kind of fasting diet. Now, this is written by a doctor, by the way, this article I was reading. Next one, hair loss. Lack of protein or B vitamins can cause hair loss. Next one, changes in menstrual cycle. Per Mayo Clinic, women who have excessively low body weight are prone to a condition called amenorrhea or the absence of menstruation. Excuse my pronunciation of that word. So that's menstrual cycle. And the last one, constipation. So somebody hears a doctor like yourself or somebody else say, man, intermittent fasting working. Then you see the article saying sleep disturbance, feeling hangry, brain fatigue, low blood sugar, hair loss, menstrual cycle, constipation. <laughs> How do you decipher between what's right and what's wrong? And what do you have to say about some of these side effects as talked about with intermittent fasting? Yeah, that's the thing is that the if you look at what actually happens during fasting, most of these are just myths. So they they have there's a lot of like brain fatigue, for example. That's not actually what happens. So when you don't eat and uh, your certain hormones go down so the insulin goes down but other hormones go up and that includes growth hormone which is what maintains your lean mass but also sympathetic nervous system and noradrenaline also go up so in fact you actually have better concentration when you're fasting compared to when you're eating so it's, it's very simple to think about it think about thanksgiving you have a huge meal like are you really mentally sharp or do you just want to lie down on the couch and watch some football right and if you think about it, it happens in animals too, because if you're out in the wild, would you want, do you really want to face that hungry wolf? Because the hungry wolf is not like fatigued and falling down. That hungry wolf is zoned in and ready to kill you, right? As opposed to the lion that just ate, it's like, ah, go ahead, right? That's the Thanksgiving guy. Wow. So the point is that the, <laughs> this is why we survived as a species, because if, so think about it, you're a caveman, it's winter time and there's nothing to eat. So you go 24 hours without eating. If your body starts to shut down, that is mentally, you start to shut down. Physically, you start to shut down. Well, you're going to die because it's even harder to find food the second day if your body is shutting down. And the third day is even worse, right? It's a spiral down. And the minute you don't sort of break that cycle, you're dead, right? Our body's just not that stupid. What we do instead is we switch our fuel sources. So fasting is a way to switch from the food that we eat to the food that we've stored on our body, which is body fat. And then our body actually revs itself up. So if you study uh, metabolism, so you study the number of calories you burn in a 24 hour period, for example, 
So you, and, and they did this study where they took people and they put them on a four day fast. So four days of zero to eat. They measured how many calories they're burning before and after. So after four days of no eating, they're actually burning 10% more calories than they were before because your body is ramping itself up. Why? Because it wants you to get out there and hunt that woolly mammoth. That's the how you survive. You switch fuel sources, you ramp yourself up, and you go get yourself some food. That's the hungry wolf. That's the that wolf is so deadly because it's, it's focused in, right? So this whole brain fatigue, it's just stupid. The, you know, there's, and through history, you've heard this. So Pythagoras, the ancient Greek mathematician, he required his students to fast before coming to class because he said, if you ate, you're like too stupid to figure out all this mathematics. <laughs> and uh, there's another great uh, story in uh, this book uh, is a biography called Unbroken. Um, it, was a, it was a memoir of this fellow who got captured uh, in, in uh, World War II. He was a fighter, he was a bomber pilot, so he got caught, put in the Japanese prisoner of war camps. So there they were literally starving, like there's really nothing to eat. And what was interesting is that he's looking around and the, the, the guy, Louis Zamperini, he says, you know, he sees people doing all these incredible mental things. He says, there's this one guy, he learned Norwegian in a single week. Another guy is reading books entirely from memory. And he goes, and, and there was this line in this biography, he goes, that's the, men the incredible mental clarity of starvation. I thought, wow, those people who are literally starving themselves, like they're starving because there's no food to eat, not fasting. Remember, fasting is voluntary. It's, it's under your control but they were routinely seeing these, these things that were just incredible. And that's why fasting has actually taken off in Silicon Valley. Like if you look at the hotbed, Silicon Valley is a huge hotbed. You know why? Because there's all these computer geniuses out there, right? They're, they're, they're building Apple and they're, you know, high tech stuff, like really difficult stuff. And they know they're smart enough to understand that if you, Give yourself a little boost in terms of the mental abilities as you get with fasting. That could be the difference between being like Facebook and being like MySpace, right? Because it's so competitive out there. You want to give yourself every advantage. So fasting is going crazy out there. You know, the CEO of Evernote and all these other people, they're doing fasting because it could mean literally millions of dollars in their pocket. Uh, if they're, if they, you know, it's like steroids for the brain, right? Uh, so, so they're doing it. And while everybody else is, oh, you're going to get brain fatigue. It's like, no, your brain's going to work just fine. Remember your body has the ability, you know, we've, we've evolved this ability to use that fat that we carry. So uh, another thing is that, you know, you, you mentioned that people get amenorrhea if your body weight's too low. Well, if your body weight is too low, you shouldn't be fasting anyway right? That makes no sense. So it's the same with anorexia. If you have anorexia nervosa, then no, you shouldn't be fasting. It's all about where you apply it, right? So you're not going to use fasting in a 16-year-old girl who weighs 60 pounds, but you are going to use fasting in a 60-year-old man who weighs 350 pounds and has type 2 diabetes, right? So they write about fasting and, oh, look, this 60-year, 60-pound girl did fasting and died. It's like, well, of course, she shouldn't have been fasting. So she should have been eating. The other guy should be fasting. So you have to know where to take it. So a lot of this stuff is just people who don't know. 
and who, who don't want to listen. And again, you know, you have to say, okay, well, if you have questions, well, let's think about it. Like, let's just use some common sense. Have people done this in the past? And it's like, yes. You know, so let's take Ramadan, for example. Literally, millions and millions of people do this for an entire month. And they're fine. They're not dying. The, 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 you know, the religion is not dying because they're all having these heart attacks and low blood sugar from, from, from Ramadan. They're doing just fine. It's, it's crazy. And the Buddhists, you know, there's lots of Buddhists and they yeah. fast all the time too. And Hindus fast. And so it's like, they're, they're not dying on the streets out there. You, you pulled so many different stories to, to validate your point from math to uh, mental clarity of starvation to uh, 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 Evernote CEO and Facebook and the difference between that to where you are now to the hungry wolf and let's the, you know, the food go away. Very interesting. Now, for, for, for those who are in the bodybuilding world, I've interviewed a lot of Mr. Olympia champions, and, and uh, that's an, uh, a, a place of interest for me because I was in that world before. What do you say to folks who, you know, you hear where they say, well, the benefit of eating six times a day is your metabolism is like a muscle. It works. The more it works, the better and stronger metal metabolism gets. The less you eat, if you skip breakfast, and you don't eat breakfast, your metabolism actually gets slower. So when you do eat it, you store the fat more than if you would have eaten more often, like six times a day. Because, you know, bodybuilders, they're supposed, you know, they eat six times a day, a ton of protein, a ton of intake uh, of food they bring in themselves to be able to, you know, uh, uh, keep that weight on. What do you say to those that say eating more often strengthens your metabolism, eating fewer times, it weakens it? Yeah, that's, that's a very specific area. So it's interesting because bodybuilders, of course, do need to eat a lot because they're just burning a lot. So, you know, these guys, like the world's strongest man, I mean, that's the, the strength competitions. Like, boy, if you look at what they eat, it's a lot. It's eat a lot. Oh, yeah. Food. And if you don't, well, you can't feed all that muscle. So that's a very specific situation in which case, and we do actually work with a number of high performance athletes. And the problem is you, if you fast for any period of time, you can't get the number of calories you need into them. But that's, that's very specific. I mean, um, it's, it's not a situation that most of us are in. The bodybuilders, it's interesting, again, because the two of the big proponents of uh, intermittent fasting from the sort of early period, like uh, in the two, you know, the early 2000s, were actually bodybuilders. It was actually brought in. This whole idea was really brought back to life by a couple of bodybuilders, uh, Martin Birkin and Brad Pilon. They were sort of led the way because they found that in the cutting phase, you know, when you're trying to, uh, you know, really look defined, it was mm -hmm. very effective for them. So, and it, it didn't sacrifice a lot of the muscle. So in terms of the met metabolic rate, it's different because we're, you have to look at the situation you're in. So the eating more food doesn't make your metabolic rate go up. So remember the metabolic rate is exercise, which is the voluntary part, but most of it is just the involuntary part, which is how much energy your brain, your lungs, your kidneys, they all need energy to work and they can go up or down by about 30%, but it's not eating more that necessarily makes it go up or eating less. Uh, you know, it doesn't do that. Fasting is a different way because if you simply cut a few calories a day, uh, you will slow down your metabolic rate. And this is the big problem when you have the standard advice 
of eat 500 calories a day less every day, and uh, you'll lose weight. You'll lose weight at first, but your metabolic rate will go down. So what happens is that if you eat 2,000 calories a day and you burn 2,000 calories a day, now you want to lose weight. So you go down to 1,500 calories a day. So you start losing weight, which is great. The problem is that your metabolic rate starts to go down. So now you're eating 1,500, and your body, instead of burning 2,000, now burns 1,500. And the problem is that the, if you haven't reduced, if you haven't fixed the hormones, that is the insulin, then you can't burn the body fat. So therefore you can only burn what's coming in, which is the 1500. So what fasting does, of course, is it switches your metabolism from burning food to burning your body fat. So therefore you can eat, you know, zero calories on that day and still burn 2000 because you're pulling it all from that body fat. So if you think about an analogy, suppose you make $2,000 a day and you spend $2,000 a day, right? Now you only spend and you have lots of money in the bank. You have a million dollars in the bank, right? So if you go from making $2,000 a day to $1,500, but you can't get money from the bank, you can only spend $1,500, right? That's the situation we're in. If you're eating 2,000 calories, you go down to $1,500, but you can't access those fat stores, then you can only burn 1500. And that's why your metabolic rate goes down. So the key is how do you unlock those calories sitting in your body fat, which are like 100, 200,000 calories of, of body fat, like that's like the money in your bank, you have to be able to get it out. If there's no branch, you can't get the money out, right? This is the same thing. And it's about fixing the hormones, the insulin. So if you allow insulin to fall, like with fasting or low carbohydrate diets, as insulin falls, you now have access to those calories in your body fat because that's the way a body works. So the body works, it's, it's you either in a fed state. So when you eat, insulin goes up mm-hmm. and tells your body to store fat mm-hmm. as you don't eat or when you fast, insulin starts to fall and your body's going to pull those calories back out of storage, which is body fat and use them. Okay. So this is what happens every day. So you eat, you store body fat, you don't eat, you burn body fat. And that's why you don't die in your sleep every single night. Because during that period, you're sleeping, insulin is falling, you're fasting, you're pulling those calories back out. So if you if you have a situation where your your fed state and fasted state are relatively balanced, well, you're balancing the time you're putting food in, and you're balancing the time you're getting food out. So you're going to stay in weight. But if you eat all the time, as we've done in the last 15, 20 years, well, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to store energy more time than you're using it. So now if you want to change the balance, you simply do more fasting and allow your body to use the, the, the body fat. Let, let's talk about that. If, if somebody's watching this and you know they've heard about it a million times, people are talking about it around them, they've read articles, seen stuff on TV. If somebody wants to test this out for the first time ever, how do you suggest one going about doing intermittent fasting? You have to understand that there's, uh, you have to build up to it generally because you do have, there's a bit of a, if you've never done it, there's about a two week period where you're going to have to get used to it because you're going to get hungry. First of all, you have to understand that. Uh, It gets easier and easier as you do it longer. But the other thing is that your body needs time because if you've never sort of gone long periods of time, then you're going to get a little bit you know, hungry and angry and all that sort of stuff, right? But it's about two weeks and then it goes away. So there's that period of adaptation. So you can sort of ease into it. 
So you start by cutting out snacks. The other thing, uh, and then you go to like, you know, a time restricted eating, which is like 16 hours of fasting. So you eat for eight hours of the day. And then you can keep going more. You can go to 20 hours or 24 hours of fasting. So you can sort of ease your way into it, or you can just jump in. The other thing that makes it easier is eating a low carbohydrate diet tends to make it easier to get into the fasting because eating more of the fat and the protein tends to keep you full for longer. So it's easier to sort of stay full for the period of time that you need to. So, and the other thing is just to get the right information. So that's, that's where I wrote the books and also on the fastingmethod.com. I have, I have blogs for, you know, I think they go back to like 2013. I had a weekly blog. So there's tons of stuff at that. So the website is the fastingmethod.com. We have a program there also to provide information and a community and all this uh, coaching and all that sort of stuff. But there's a lot of free stuff on there too. But you got to get the right information because you need to know what to expect. So if, if, for example, one of the very common things is that people get headaches when they start fasting. So if you know that some people get headaches and you know that they'll go away, well, then you can deal with it. Or constipation, for example. Constipation is very common because if there's less going in, there's less going out. So it shouldn't be very uncomfortable, but how are you going to deal with that? Uh, you get the flip side too. Some people actually get diarrhea when they start. So again, what do you do about that? So again, the body is actually trying to dump water and sometimes it's just dumping so much that you get this diarrhea. But also understanding that, that, you know, hey, you might get a headache. And then when you get the headache, then, then you know that, hey, I can expect it and I can expect it to go away. So therefore, you know how to handle it as opposed to just jumping in and saying, oh, I got this terrible headache the first time I did it. It was terrible. So I'm never doing it again. It's like, well, you didn't get the right information of what to expect. So you weren't able to sort of successfully go through because the point of fasting is that, you know, diets are great, but there's an inherent limit to most diets. So if you eat a Mediterranean diet, that's great. But if you're not losing the weight you want to lose, you can't get more, you can't be more Mediterranean, right? Or more paleo or whatever. If you're eating low carb, it's hard to be more low carb. If you're a vegetarian, you can't get more vegetarian, right? Sure. So there's an inherent limit to that, as opposed to fasting where there's actually no limit. That is, you can fast for 16 hours, you can fast for 16 days if you want to. And the other thing is that, is it, is it going to work, right? That's the other thing, because you don't want to do a diet to lose weight if it's not going to work. Well, there's really nothing that works any better because you're eating zero. So it's low everything. It's low calorie. It's not, it's not, you know, there's no animal products. There's no nuts. It's, it's zero. You can't get lower than zero. So as a diet, it really is the ultimate in weight loss. There's no possible way you can do better than zero. So therefore it will work. So it will work and there's no limit to how long you can go. So therefore that gives you a huge advantage because you can, you can apply it. Uh, there's a lot of other advantages too for fasting, which is uh, one of the reasons it's so powerful. That is, it, it really talks about the, the timing, the when to eat part of it. It doesn't matter if you're vegetarian or paleo or keto or whatever. So you can use, add it to any diet. It's free. So it doesn't cost any money, right? So if you try to eat a keto diet and you're, you know, you're some poor guy and, you know, in the inner city and you're sick, well, you can make yourself better for free because it actually not only doesn't cost money, 
but it doesn't, it actually saves you money. You don't have to buy food. It's convenient because you don't have to cook food. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to eat. You don't have to shop. You're going to get all that time back. It's flexible. That is, you can do it anywhere, anytime. There's no inherent limitation. Is it common for people to do it on Wednesdays from 6 p.m. till noon the next day? Is that the typical schedule? Because that's when most people do it in the office here. <laughs> it can be any day. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of different strategies. So uh, that sort of um, sort of time-restricted eating, which is just picking a time, is very effective, especially, you know, if you do it with a group of people. So if everybody yeah. in the office is like, you know what, we're not eating between this and this. That's very effective because that was the secret to why people are able to fast because they did it in groups, right? So if you're, you know, say it's Lent and, you know, your priest is talking to you about, uh, you know, it's Lent and you should fast. Well, you're fasting, your family is fasting, your friends are fasting, everybody you know in this community is fasting. Well, guess what? You're going to do it. Even though you don't particularly like it, it's going to be easy because that's the easy way to go or Ramadan. Everybody in your family, most of your friends are fasting because it's Ramadan. It, you're going to do it. Yeah. So if your office is doing it together, that's fantastic. That mm-hmm. is probably the most important thing is to have the supportive community of people who are like, we understand the benefits and we think that it would be great to all do this together and get healthier. Because what we're going to do is we're going to lose some weight. We're going to get our blood sugar down because when you don't eat, your body's going to burn up that blood sugar. And that's the secret to type 2 diabetes. Because if you don't eat, your blood sugar will come down and you don't need medications anymore. And you're going to get healthier for it. So that, 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 that community, that understanding, that's sort of the most important thing. So that, that Wednesday from 6 p.m. till the next day is perfect. Now, what, what can you do during that time? What can you have? I hear water, coffee, that's all I hear. Yeah, so tea is also a good alternative. Okay. So in a classic fast, you're talking water only. Um, but if you're talking for weight loss, there's all kinds of other stuff you could use that is fine. So tea is great. Green tea is good. Uh, green tea may actually be a little bit better than most because it has certain uh, antioxidants called catechins that um, actually helps suppress the appetite a little bit. Uh, And you can get all sorts of herbal teas, flavored teas. I worked with a company called Peak Tea to make these fasting teas that have all these sort of antioxidants and stuff. Coffee is great, but just avoid the sweeteners and the sugars. Some people think it's okay to take the sweetener, but the problem with sweeteners, so I'm talking about the zero calorie stuff, The problem with the sweeteners is that it generally wants, it makes you want to eat. So if you think about an appetizer, what an appetizer is, is a small portion of food that makes you more hungry. So when you take something like, you know, sweetened, so no calories, but artificially sweetened, when you take that, your body's like, oh, this is sweet. And it acts like an appetizer. So therefore it's going to make it harder for you to fast. If you can do it, no problem. But for most people, they actually start to get cravings and they start to get hungry. And then it's going to make the fasting harder, as opposed to the uh, teas and the coffees, which generally will help suppress it. The other thing is to understand that the hunger will come, but it passes. 
So the studies in, in, in medicine, we study something called ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. So the higher your ghrelin, the hungrier you feel. And what's, uh, so when you study people who do a 24 hour fast, they get these blips of ghrelin. So they get these periods of time where they get hungry. And when you don't eat, so say you, it's 12 o'clock, you get the spike of ghrelin, you're hungry, it's lunchtime, but you decide, okay, I'm fasting, I'm not going to eat. So when they measure the ghrelin, it actually doesn't keep going up. So everybody thinks that hunger will go up, 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 up. It doesn't. It goes up for a little bit. And then if you don't eat, it just falls back down to baseline. So you're hungry at 12, you're hungry at one by four o'clock, you're actually the same level of hunger as if you ate, which is very, very interesting. Because what the body has done, of course, is taken the calories that it needed out of your body fat. So in essence, you've eaten a meal out of your own body fat, and therefore you're no longer hungry or not any hungrier than you would have been before. And it'll happen again at dinner. If, if you know, your ghrelin is going to spike up, you're going to get hungry. But if you simply ignore it and do nothing, it will fall back down. So at seven o'clock, eight o'clock, hungry. By 11 o'clock, you're at the same level of hunger. And having done a lot of these, uh, you know, it, it probably takes a, a week or two to get used to it, then it, it totally is. So what I tell people to do is that if, you, if you're used to eating lunch and you decide, okay, I'm going to skip lunch, I'm going to fast, mm-hmm. just get yourself a nice cup of hot tea or hot coffee. By the time you do that and finish it, the hunger wave will have mostly gone. It's like a wave. You just waves, it crests, and then it goes back down. And then you ride out the other side. That's that's great to know. This is, by the way, a very interesting first hour of this interview. But uh, let's get to the next part here, which is cancer. You know, cancer is uh, 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 something that I believe every family somehow, some way has been directly hit by it or indirectly hit by it by someone in their family. I have my uh, grandmother, my father's mother, we lost due to cancer. You know, you wrote this book, Cancer Code, that's coming out November 10. We're going to put the link below. I pulled up some stats. Just out of curiosity, before we do this interview, and and the biggest question, I went up to American Cancer Society to find out what causes cancer, because you'll typically hear this conversation coming up, what causes cancer, and different things came up, smoking and tobacco, diet and physical activity, sun and other types of radiation, viruses and other infection, and then genetics. So this is American Cancer Society saying it. You wrote the book Cancer Code. Based on your research, what causes cancer? Yeah, that, it, it's certainly true, all of what they say. Um, what I try to do in the cancer code is sort of put it together. It's more of a science book at the beginning. And then I go into nutrition and cancer because that's sort of how I got into it from the first place. But the, 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 the first part of the book is really talking about how cancer develops. And, it, you know, tobacco, and I talk about all those things, tobacco and diet and uh, smoking and, uh, you know, asbestos and soot and all these chemicals. So those are called carcinogens. And the question is, how do those carcinogens lead to cancer? And what is cancer? Because that's really the question. So of all the sort of major medical diseases, cancer is by far the most mysterious because we've sort of figured out what causes a lot of disease. So we have infections and we have viruses. Uh, we have, uh, if your arteries get blocked up, you get a heart attack or you get a stroke. So we figured it out. We really haven't figured out what is cancer because cancer is not this extrinsic agent like a virus that comes in and attacks you. It's actually like a perversion of our own cell. 
So if you have lung cancer, that cancer is derived from your own originally normal lung cell. So what turned that cell, which is normal, like everybody has, and turn it into a cancer cell? And that's the really interesting part because that's our, our thinking about that has changed over the years. So we initially thought of it as sort of a fluke, like, uh, you know, it just happens for no reason. It just grows too much. So if it's a, if it's a, if it's a lung cancer and it grows too much, well, we're going to devise ways to kill it. So we have surgery, for example, we have radiation, we have chemotherapy, which is drugs. So that's the sort of classic, and that still sort of forms most of what we think about cancer treatments, but really they're indiscriminate ways of killing people, right? So it's cutting like surgery, it's burning with radiation, or it's poison like chemotherapy. As we got into the 2000s, people started to think about uh, genetics more and more. So we, you know, cracked the genetic code, and then we got the human genome, uh, project which, uh, you know, put out all the, uh, you know, the entire genome of a human being. And then we said, okay, well, cancer is a disease uh, where genetic mutations will change. So if you happen to have a chance genetic mutation in a gene that controls growth, well, that can cause you to grow too much. So then we started to look for genetic mutations and it was initially very successful. Uh, and then we thought, well, if we simply look at the cancer, we can find the two or three genetic mutations, develop these drugs to, to target these mutations, and there, it's all done, right? But, and it worked well for the first little bit. So we developed a couple of drugs uh, for breast cancer, for a type of leukemia, fantastically successful. But the problem was that as we started to look further and further into this genetic mutation model, we actually uh, didn't uh, get anywhere because they didn't have two or three genetic mutations. They had like hundreds of mutations. So uh, after the Human Genome Project, they did this Cancer Genome Atlas where they sequenced thousands of cancers to find out what type of mutations there are. And it turns out that if you have uh, one cancer, you might have a hundred different genetic mutations and the person next to you with the exact same cancer would have a hundred completely different mutations. So all over the place, it was complete like bedlam. It couldn't make any heads or tails of it. But the important thing from, from that standpoint is that you can't treat that because you can't get a hundred different drugs for one person and a hundred completely different drugs for the next person. It just isn't possible. So that sort of brought that whole genetic paradigm to a grinding halt. Um, and that's where most people think we are, but it's actually, we've actually gone much further than that. So we've gone the next step and said, well, if, if genes are mutating, we know they're mutating, what is driving this mutation? And it turns out it's likely an evolutionary process. So it's a response probably to chronic injury. As you get this chronic injury, like tobacco smoke, like radiation, your body starts to go back and the cell becomes more primitive, more like a solitary, like a single-celled organism. That is, we're all, our bodies are composed of multiple cells, but, you know, we have to work as a team. So your lung has to work with your liver, right? And the liver, all the liver cells have to work in conjunction with blood cells and so on. So it's all a team. So cells have to cooperate with each other. When you get this sort of chronic damage to the cells, you get basically lose this law and order. And what you get is like anarchy. So in this anarchy of, you know, the lung or the liver or wherever you're getting this damage, 
the certain cells can sort of break off on their own and become like single celled organism, which is much like, you know, in a city where there's, you know, total chaos, you know, police have gone, you get looting and all this because mm -hmm. everybody's looking out for themselves. So instead of cooperating with just the, these cells actually start to behave more and more like they're out, you know, every cell for itself. And that's when it becomes dangerous because the cells who are out for themselves, they grow, right? They, because that's what they want to do. They move all over the place, just like a bacteria will move all over the place. So these cells can metastasize and there's no controls on this growth. So normally we control the growth of the liver very tightly. That is the liver is a certain size and it won't, won't, get, won't grow any bigger, but these cells that are, have, we've sort of lost control of, they, they behave like their own organisms. So they're basically just grow as much as they can. And that's danger. But that paradigm is very powerful because it leads to sort of the next level in terms of what are treatments, which is now we're talking about immunotherapy, where what we want to do is not just indiscriminately kill, but we want to get, you know, um, strengthen the immune system, sort of like a police force to go in there and hunt these bad, bad cells, as opposed to indiscriminately killing everything, right? You're not trying to carpet bomb, you know, cells into submission. What you're trying to do with immunotherapy is go in there and treat it. So that's, that's the sort of idea of what is causing cancer. It's, it's sort of an interesting story of how to think about cancer. And then we talk about, and then I talk about nutrition and cancer, because again, one of the things we never realized until about the year 2000 is the very strong link between obesity and type two diabetes and cancer. Like obesity and cancer? Yeah, obesity and cancer. It's a huge risk factor. So when they look at the attributable risk for a certain um, thing, so they look at, say you take a population and what percent uh, attributable risk, uh, risk factor is. So you say tobacco, tobacco is about 35%. The diet is about 30 to 35% as well. So it is as big a risk factor to cancer in general um, as tobacco. Nothing else comes close. Wow like not radiation, not anything. So the question is what part of the diet is it? It's mostly the part that leads to obesity. So it's not all cancers, like lung cancer, it makes no difference. Tobacco smoke makes a difference to, uh, you know, being obese makes no difference to lung cancer, but breast cancer, colorectal cancer, liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, the, the World Health Organization identifies 13 cancers as definitely being obesity related. And it's a real issue because as you have this increasing uh, obesity epidemic, what we're seeing is in now, so, so cancer rates have been steadily falling because the smoking was going down. But in those cancers where that are obesity related, we're seeing a, a, an uptick now. And it's affecting younger and younger people because the population that is obese is actually going younger and younger. Like you're seeing kids who never would have like, you know, you look at classrooms and there is like zero obese kids in the 1970s. And now there's like, you know, a handful, but the 20 year olds, the 30 year olds, as you go, from, you know, each, each year, each, um, you know, uh, population 
is, is fatter than, than the equivalent population sort of 50 years ago. So the problem is that cancer is following them down. So you're getting cancers in younger people because of this obesity epidemic, which, which is concerning, of course. Yeah, I mean, you're saying that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because in your book, is, you say for the first time ever, the death rate from cancer is showing a steady decline, but the war on cancer has hardly been won. And then I pulled up stats from American uh, Cancer Society about exactly what you just said. With children starting to have cancer, this is what it pulled up. Worldwide in 2018, 18.1 million new cases in 2018. 9.5 million cancer-related deaths worldwide. That's 52.4% worldwide, meaning if you got it, 50% chance, you're gone worldwide. For adults in 2020, an estimated 1,806,000 new cases of cancer will be diagnosed in the U.S. alone, of which 606,520 will die from it. That's 34%. The next stat is kind of interesting to me. In 2020, an estimated 16,850 children and adolescents ages zero to 19 will be diagnosed with cancer and 1730 will die of the disease, which is 10.2%. So worldwide highest percentage, adults, uh, 34% US, uh, children and adolescents zero to 19, 10% death if you get cancer. And then on this other stat on the same uh, website says 39.5% of men and women will be diagnosed with cancer at some point during their lifetime as they're going through this. So the question then for you to becomes four different things. One, um, have we figured out, you talked a lot about control. What can we do to control the virus? Okay, control the virus. But control to me is not good, bad, ugly. It's just you're controlling it. We have a con steady control of the virus. Okay, that, that's not optimum results. That's just, we have control of it. We have a control of the enemy. We have a control of this, you know, sickness. We have a control of this, you know, a competitor, whatever, there's some kind of control. But then you have preventative, you have treating, curing, eliminating. So preventative, you know, tobacco, you smoke cigarettes, 35%. Look, if you're not going to stop smoking cigarettes from all these commercials, all these videos, all these documentaries, you still want to smoke cigarettes, that's on you. That's the risk you're taking by smoking cigarettes. But everything else, have we found anything to prevent from having cancer outside of obesity, which is what you're talking about, as well as treat, cure, and eliminate where man doesn't have to worry about, oh my gosh, there's a 39.5% chance I'm going to get cancer one day. If I get cancer, there's a 30-some percent chance I'm going to die from it. That's pretty scary. Are we making progress on that in both preventative and how to treat and cure? Yeah, we're making good progress, actually, because the, um, the you have to identify the causes in order for you to make progress. So if you identify lung cancer as caused by tobacco smoke, and for, to a large extent, that's true. Now you can prevent smoking and prevent cancer. Same with asbestos. So asbestos causes other cancer called mesothelioma. You get rid of asbestos in the home, mesotheliomas all of a sudden become rare. Now we've done the same thing for certain viruses. So hepatitis viruses, and well as um, human papillomavirus. So human papillomavirus causes cervical cancer, which used to be a big, it used to be like the number four killer is like huge, but we identified the virus. Now we have a, we have a vaccine for it. And there's actually in, in many, many countries, actually there's uh, this universal vaccination of, of children for human papillomavirus or for girls in some cases. And now, because we've been doing that vaccination for so long, 
we actually see the rates of cervical cancer steadily moving down. In fact, they just published a study where they looked at um, places where they had universal vaccination and the rate, uh, like in, in when they're children, like before sexual activity. And what you find is cervical cancer is, you know, like 5% of what it used to be, like just incredible success. So when you can identify the cause of the cancer, you do very, very well. You, do, you can do the same thing with um, uh, H. pylori. So there's a bacteria in the, in the stomach called H. pylori was very prevalent in the, uh, in the Orient. And now that you have better sanitation and stuff, that stomach cancer is actually getting better and better. So in the United States, it wasn't such a big deal because, but, but in Japan and Hong Kong and places like that, where there's a lot of overcrowding and bad water and stuff. People got a lot of this um, H. pylori. So if you identify the cause, you do very well. The problem is you can't identify every cause. We don't know what causes breast cancer, for example. We don't know what causes colorectal cancer. But the big advance there is in terms of uh, prevention. That is, if you understand that being overweight is going to increase your risk of breast cancer and colorectal cancer a lot, and that's what's driving these young people to get breast cancer and colorectal cancer. Uh, then you can, you can do something about it and try and get them to lose weight. You can also look at the certain genes like the BRCA gene and try and screen for that. And then in terms of colorectal cancer, you have screening for colonoscopies and that kind of thing where you take out these pre um, these lesions before they become cancer. So we're making good progress on all that. In terms of treatment, the treatment has been a lot slower to get to the front lines, but this entire area of immunotherapy is just very, very uh, promising in terms of a different type of treatment as opposed to the old treatments of sort of cutting, slashing, and burning, um, and, and, and beyond the sort of just the genetic uh, paradigm of cancer, now we have this sort of immune uh, side of cancer that we can start developing new drugs to, to uh, treat. And, and in certain instances, they've really done a great job in terms of improving the survival. Certain people with melanoma, for example, and certain types of other cancer have really benefited. Uh, we're sort of in the early stages of that development, but uh, you know, I'm hoping that that's, that's a whole new angle. And that's always very promising to get these whole new angles. The best is to, to prevent it, of course. And that's, that's where understanding of the role of nutrition, the role of obesity, the role of type 2 diabetes in it will hopefully prevent it. Because if you can prevent the, you know, it comes down to the same thing. If you can prevent the obesity, you're going to lower your risk of breast cancer, colorectal cancer. Then you never have to worry about treatment down the line. Yeah, I mean, obesity in America, 2016, we got 650 million people in America that are obese. It's a ridiculous number today, like more than ever before. But to wrap up here with this, I'm going back to one of the things you and I talked about at the beginning with the influence of pharma, big pharma. The national expenditure for cancer care in 2018 was $151 billion. That's a big number. That's not a small number. That's a very, very big number. So then the question becomes the following. Is it a good thing for the folks in business for us to truly cure cancer? Or is cancer a very big business that creates a lot of jobs that maybe we do have the cure, but we don't want to cure? 
or am I, you know, going a little <laughs> too deep in into the because you, you kind of know where I'm going with this. I'm just asking you a question. $151 billion your industry, that's a lot of jobs right there. If we were to divide that between how many people uh, at $100,000 your salary can we get at $150 billion, I'll do the math for you right now just to kind of figure this number out. If we got $150 billion, 100,000, that's 1.5 million jobs at $100,000. If we were to cure cancer, we lose $150,000 your jobs. Is it 150,000 or is it 1.5 million? 1 million? It's a lot of jobs, 1.5 million, $100,000 jobs. So do we really, are there people that really are kind of like, well, we kind of can do something to get rid of it, but should we really, I don't know, let's kind of keep it around a little bit. What are your thoughts on that? I think people are trying to get rid of it. First, you'll never get rid of it because it's actually a part of ourselves. That is, it's impossible to eradicate cancer risk completely because it's the part of the way that we do life, right? These cancers are actually, they're perversions of our own cells. So we can't actually get rid of it. It's, 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 it's uh, impossible. And I think that... Yeah, it's impossible to completely yeah. get rid of it. You can you can lower your risk in many different ways, but you can't ever get rid of it completely. Now, I think that there's so much cancer that nobody's thinking that we shouldn't try to get rid of it. But what they've done instead, which is rather uh, despicable, I think, but what they've done instead is that they've raised the prices of these drugs so incredibly high that a single course will be like, you know, these new drugs. So, so I'll tell you the old drugs would have cost you know, like, you know, if you had to buy it and didn't have insurance, a couple thousand dollars perhaps, right? So when Gleevec, which is one of the big breakthroughs of the genetic era, it was probably like $2,000, $3,000 for a year for one patient. Now you're talking about $200,000, $300,000. That's the price of a course of these medications. Wait, yeah. wait, let, let, let me stop you there. So you, you said it used to be $2,000 per year per patient. Now it's yeah. 200,000 per year. Yeah, these per are patient. different drugs. Yeah. But to, to give you a sense, so the, in 2000, that was sort of the, the best cancer drug you had and be about 2000, 3000. That was a lot back then. So normal, you know, blood pressure drugs would be like 80 bucks, right? So 200, 300, 400 is expensive. 2000 was like, wow, that's really expensive, but the drug was great. So if you were to get a sort of state-of-the-art drug, not that drug, but a different state-of-the-art drug today, most of the price tags are $100,000, $200,000. It's insane. Like, it's insane. So what they've done, of course, is instead of saying, okay, let's get rid of cancer, they're like, well, each cancer case, instead of bringing in $2,000, we'll bring in $200,000, right? A hundred times the cost. Now, as I've said, that those are two different drugs. One is like a biologic and stuff, and it's newer. But at the same time, that is sort of state-of-the-art drug at that time. So it's really a huge hot-button issue because people are saying, like, even if you can develop these drugs, nobody can afford them. So in the end, it's the same. Like, you're not doing anybody any good yeah. because you're pricing them so high. And the problem is that the price of the drug has nothing to do with how much it costs to make. So, um, you know, for example, there's a drug uh, that they make in India. You know, it's a tablet. This is... You know, here they'll charge like, you know, to 800 bucks. And in, in Brazil, they'll sell it for like seven cents or something like that. Is you know, the, the, the price of the drug has nothing to do with how, how much it costs to make, only how much you're willing to pay. That's about it. That's the only thing constraining the price. 
that 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 uh, when you said one hundred to two hundred thousand dollars, how much does that actually cost them to make the treatment? Yeah, it's very little. It's all the it's all the research that goes into it. But even then, it, it's it's not uh, commensurate with the the cost of the research because the marketing costs like are higher than research budgets like marketing budgets more than they put into like why don't you put the money into making good drugs instead of marketing right because somebody's got to pay for all the doctors free meals and they've got to pay for those 1500 bucks and they've got to pay for all the the university professors you've bought out and all this you've got to pay for those studies that prove that you're good it's 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 a difficult system it's a yeah yeah you're in an interesting industry well i gotta tell you i've really enjoyed the time we've had together and uh, for anybody that's watching this, we're going to put the links to all the books below, Obesity Code, Diabetes Code, and especially Cancer Code that's coming out November 10th. And uh, the link to the one website you shared with us as well, we'll put the link to that as well below if people want to get some of the free articles you have on that website. Uh, Dr. Jason Funk, I have really enjoyed this time with you. I appreciate you for being transparent, and hopefully we'll have you back here uh, in the future as well. Absolutely. Had a great time. Thanks so much. Well, he definitely wasn't holding back. I mean, any questions, he was being very transparent and being willing to share his opinion with us. I was very curious on some of the things we talked about with the amount of control Big Pharma has behind closed doors with doctors, universities, all of those things. And you saw, you heard what he said. So uh, curious to hear your thoughts, comment below. On top of that, if you enjoyed this interview, I think you'll also enjoy an interview I did a few months ago with Dr. Uh, Thomas Cowan. If you've never seen that, click over here to watch the interview. And if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.